Well, good morning again. You can take your Bibles and open up to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. And we're going to start off, we're going to try something a little different. I'm going to describe a person to you, and you're going to sit there and see if you can guess who I'm talking about. Okay, here we go. First one. This person loves to watch TV all day and drink beer. He's bald, except for a few hairs on his head and overweight. He is a terrible father, sometimes abusive, and an inconsiderate husband. The wife slash mom is the backbone of the family and essentially does everything. Overall, this person is irresponsible, lazy, and essentially worthless. And one last thing. He has yellow skin and he works at a nuclear plant. Do you know who it is? Homer Simpson. Homer Simpson. Okay. Let me give you another one. This guy's an old rock and roll legend, but his glory days are over, so now he sits around at home all day. His kids are spoiled and out of control, and once again, his wife is the backbone of the family and pretty much does everything. Also, years of drug abuse have rotted his mind, and so he can barely speak intelligibly. Who is he? Ozzy Osbourne. Wow, you guys know that. Okay. One more. This guy is another poor father with loser children. He he himself is once again lazy and likes to plop down in front of the TV all day and drink beer. He views his wife as the old ball and chain and loves escaping to go drinking with his friends. He really has nothing to live for, but he does work as a shoe salesman. Who is he? Al Bundy. Thank you. Okay, well, these all are or once were popular TV characters based either on fact or fiction. But they make it on TV because they are, to some, entertaining to watch. But if you picked up on it, what is the message being sent here about men? What does our world think of men today? These are pretty much exaggerated caricatures, although Ozzy Osbourne's a real person. But this is pretty much it. Our popular culture today thinks that men are mostly worthless. You know, they may work a little, but otherwise they laze around all day, and they are poor fathers and poor husbands. In fact, for some, the husband or father just makes things worse. That's why more and more women, whether in, on TV or in real life, are finding it easier simply to raise their kids on their own. Women are filling the leadership vacuum in the home. The strong husband and father figure is largely absent, so they just go it on their own. And so the role of husband and father are becoming irrelevant as families adjust to how things are in America today. This is what the world thinks of men today in large part. What does God think? Or at the very least, what does God think men should be like? Would God be content with a Homer Simpson or Al Bundy or not? Does God call men to be more? What what standard should husbands and fathers in particular really cling to. This is what we want to study this morning, get into. Last week we spent our time looking at this extended preview of women's roles in Scripture. Our goal is to see what standard God calls women to. And let's start with a quick recap. Before we got into the issue of women's roles, we, we started by covering these three essential concepts. The first concept was companionship. Companionship, and that deals with the the purpose of marriage on a human level. 
We know that the purpose of all things is to bring glory to God, but God created marriage. He designed it to provide this companionship and partnership between the man and the woman. That was our first concept, companionship. The second concept was equality. And we got into what it means and what it doesn't mean. We found through Scripture that God created man and woman totally equal in being. In other words, both man and woman were created equally in the image of God. They both equally bear God's image. And so God equally loves and values men and women. Man is not superior to woman, and woman is not superior to man in the eyes of God. They're equal in being. However, this equality does not mean that men and women are not different. Though they're equally created in God's image, God also created men and women to have different functions or different roles. Again, these different roles don't have anything to do with one gender being better than the other. It's that as God created men and women with different roles, he wanted them to work together and to complement one another and thereby bring him glory. And God himself exists in the same way. God is one, but he exists as three persons in the Trinity. And each person shares equally in being God. They're all equal in being. But even though they're equal, the three members of the tree, they each have different roles or functions. And they work together and complement one another. And thus the relationship between husband and wife is a reflection of the perfection of God's own existence. It's really amazing when you think about it. He designed marriage to reflect his own being and how he exists. So that was companionship. That was equality. The third concept we got into last week was headship. This concept called headship. Headship is essentially that of leadership. That's what it means, leadership. Whereas the Bible teaches that Christ is the head of the church, so the Bible also teaches that the husband is the head of his wife. What does that mean? It means that God intends men to be the leaders of the family. That's what it means. We talked a lot last week about how the world really objects to this concept of headship. But nonetheless, it's part of God's perfect design for the husband to be the leader of his family. Again, it doesn't have anything to do with superiority or being one better than the other. It's just an issue of function. God designed and designated men to function as the head. So that's headship. Those are our three concepts we looked at last week. And after we surveyed those three concept concepts, we moved on to cover two primary roles of the wife according to Scripture. Getting to the issue of roles. What are these different roles and functions? We looked at two major ones, two primary roles of the wife according to Scripture. And what were these to continue our recap? Well, the first was for wives to be suitable helpers. To be suitable helpers. That's straight out of Genesis 2, which we studied. God designed women to be suitable helpers. And the word helper, it's not talking about a personal servant or a slave. It's really the idea of a, of a partner. God designed women to partner with their husbands, to help them. As it is the husband's job to lead the family according to God's will, so it is the wife's job to, to help the husband with that and to align herself with that same goal, to aid the family in that. The second role for wives, according to Scripture, is for them to be submissive helpers. And this was our swear word from last week, if you remember. That's pretty much what this concept is to our world today. It's about as rotten as you can get. And the world wonders, you know, how can you still 
possibly tell women or wives to to submit to their husbands in the 21st century. That's barbaric. That's medieval. We spent a lot of time weeding through all the misconceptions of this concept of submission last week and finding out what it really means. What does it really mean? Well, remembering the concept of headship, which we went over, for a wife to submit to her husband simply means that she is to arrange herself under her husband's leadership. That's what it means. It doesn't mean the husband is to be a dictator. It doesn't mean the wife is to be a doormat. Rather, as Jesus willfully and joyfully submitted himself to the Father's will, to the Father's leadership, you could say, so the wife is to do the same. Again, it's a reflection of the order and the unity of the Godhead. And I'm certainly well aware of the fact that our world hates the idea of submission today. And by by no means do I want to excuse rotten husbands who really take advantage of it or abuse it or do it wrongly. At at the same time, this is God's will for the wife at the end of the day. And, And at the end of the day, it really is a submission to God issue, not a submission to husband issue. It's whether or not you're going to value God's plan for the man and the woman and to do what he says, to do his will. So anyway, that was all last week. If you missed last week and you want to, I don't know, get the whole scoop, you can go onto the new website, you can download it, you'll be good to go. But for now, we want to continue on. We're, we're making our way through the book of Titus. And we're in the second chapter, we're going verse by verse. And in Titus chapter 2, Paul gives instructions both to the older generation and then to the younger generation. Just to remember where we've been, let's start reading at verse 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 2. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound, in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, Workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And naturally, last week we were narrowing in on verses 4 and 5, so we covered the roles for the young women. Today, however, we want to set our sights on the men, on the younger men, which is what Paul does in the next verse. But I figured I would do what we did last week, Before we get into Titus 2, and it's a short verse, before we finish this off, I want to first continue this preview of of these marital roles or marriage roles, this time covering the role of the husband. We've seen what God expects of the wives. So now what does he expect of the husbands? What standard does he hold the men to? Is God content with you being like a, a Homer Simpson or not? Well, we're going to find out. So again, before we get into Titus 2, we're going to cover two primary roles of the husband according to Scripture. Last week we did the two primary roles of the wife here. Two primary roles of the husband according to Scripture. That's what we're going to start off with. The first one, you can probably guess. The first role is leader. The husband is to be the leader. 
Now, we spent a lot of time in Genesis 1 through 3 already, and, and from those chapters you can clearly see the man's intended role of being leader. From the beginning, God created man as the head or as the leader of the family unit. Just read those three chapters. It, it just pops off the page. But instead of turning back to Genesis 1 again, this time we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. So do that with me. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Very well known, popular passage where Paul instructs husbands and wives respectively. And what's interesting is that Paul himself, just like Jesus did, refers back to Genesis 1 all the time in these instructions. But for now, let's look at this New Testament instruction for the husbands and the wives. In particular, let's start from verse 22, Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Here we see again that wives are to submit themselves to their husband's leadership. But in the perspective, or from the perspective of the husband, never are husbands told to force or to make their wives submit. Never. Rather, the wife is to willingly submit herself to her husband's leadership. But also notice this. Notice why God instructs wives to submit to their husbands here. What is it? Why should they? What is the justification given for the wife's submission? Why? It comes in verse 23. Right after the command for wives, verse 23. Because... Verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife. Key word there is, is. The husband is the head of the wife. It doesn't say the husband can be or the husband should be the head of the wife. Or the husband should aim to be. Rather, it says the husband is the head of the wife. And it's, it's not a command. This is not a command. It's, it's a statement of fact. Pure, simple statement of fact. By God's own design, the husband is the head of the wife. The question is, is he going to act like it and fulfill what that role means? This, again, is the concept of headship, which we're getting more familiar with, and it indicates function, in particular, the function of leadership. To be the head means to function as the leader. And God designed men to lead. That's the first role, leader, to be leader. You might ask, well, whom are men to lead? From this verse, it's clear each man is to lead his own wife. You're not called to lead someone else's wife, and no one else is called to lead your wife. You're called to lead your own wife. And that's actually a critical point to grasp when you think about it. And so men, get this point concerning your wives. It's not your wife's job, nor your parents' job, nor her parents' job, nor your children's job, nor anyone else's job to lead your wife. It is your job to lead your wife. This is a responsibility that, that is given directly to you by God so that the fa family can function as God intended. So you just need to ask yourself a simple question. If your family is not thriving, spiritually speaking, if they're not doing well in the Lord, then who are you waiting for 
to come lead them. If you fail to lead your wife and children, then either no one will lead them or the wrong person will lead them and you don't want either. So who are you waiting for to come lead your family if you're not going to do it? This is a serious calling. It's a serious role. And with that in mind, what does it tell you when you see a wife or kids going astray or not flourishing, spiritually speaking? Who's responsible? The husband. Now, don't get me wrong. The wife is responsible for her own actions, and she will stand before God herself, and she's accountable for herself, of course. But at the same time, God also is going to hold the husbands accountable for how they led and shepherded their families. There's a special accountability there. And so maybe, men, you feel privileged for being the head or for being the leader. But understand this, this so-called privilege comes with massive responsibility and accountability. It's huge. In 1944, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, before he was president, he was general, General Eisenhower, was in charge of planning and overseeing Operation Overlord. Do you know what that was? D-Day. D-Day. And we all know what D-Day was. It was the turning point of World War II. And it was a great success. But Eisenhower, while he was planning, he wasn't so sure that it was going to succeed. So in secret, he drafted this letter to be released in the event that the D-Day invasion of Normandy failed. If it all went wrong, the secret letter was going to be released. And in that letter, he explains how the decision to attack in that time and at that place was his decision. And that the military forces did everything they could. And he closes that letter by saying this, If any blame or fault attaches to this attempt, it is mine alone. End quote. You you could probably argue if D-Day failed, you know, it's the soldiers' fault. They didn't fight hard enough. But Eisenhower knew that as the head, the leader of that operation, the responsibility ultimately fell to him. He knew it. If the operation failed, then as head of the operation, the blame rested with him. This is, you might say, the privilege of headship, but this is the responsibility of headship. It's the same way with husbands as leaders in the household. The function of leader comes with great responsibility, and one day you will be called to give an account of that role and of your leadership. So, do not squander that responsibility, and do not abuse that responsibility to lead. And additionally, do not forsake that responsibility. The basic call here for the men is to step up While so many husbands around you are abdicating or basically throwing off their responsibility to lead in the household, you must instead embrace it as God intends. So the director for men to lead their wives, it's very clear from Scripture, your first role for the husbands, it's it's crystal clear to lead, to be the leader. God intends men to lead as the head. It's a position of utmost importance and responsibility. We have another question that comes up here. Okay, first role, men are to lead. How are they to lead? 
How exactly should they be leading their wives, their kids, their families? Well, the answer to this comes with the second primary role of the husband. Remember, we're looking at the two primary roles. The second one helps answer this question. The first role, the husband is to be a leader. The second role, the husband is to be a lover. He is to be a lover, loving his wife and children. Let's keep reading in Ephesians 5. I trust you're still there. Ephesians 5, look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. The wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Long section. I can go through all this, but let me point out three Simple observations from what we just read, Ephesians 5, 25 through 33. Three simple observations from this, just for your consideration. First, notice the command. The command. What's the command? The main command, it's pretty obvious. It's the same command that comes in Colossians 3.19. It's right there, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. It's the command. In reading through this passage, did you observe... How many times this command was repeated? Four times. Four times this command comes in one form or another. And the verb we have here for love is agapao, which I think many of you are familiar with. We're talking about a loyal, steadfast, unconditional love. This is not the love of emotion or attraction, but rather commitment. So wives... Rather, excuse me, husbands, love your wives. Show them that commitment. And not in a cold, detached way, of course. It's not what we're talking about. But show them this meaningful, unconditional commitment and love. That's the command. Second now, notice from this passage the model. The model. The model for this type of love the husbands are called to give is Christ himself. He is the model for husbands. It says, verse 25, husbands are to love their wives just as. It's two little words really kind of up the ante. Just as Christ also loved the church, gave himself up for her. This is pretty important to grasp. How did Christ lead the church as the head of the church? He led the church in large part by loving the church. How did he love the church? He loved the church by sacrificially giving of himself. He laid down his life so that his bride, the church, might have life. It was a life for a life. 
So what is the model of leadership that Christ leaves for husbands here? The answer would be sacrificial service. Not just normal service, sacrificial service. It's like 1 John 3.16. We know love by this, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So, wives or children, if you're in the room, this type of sacrificial service is required of you as well. God requires all of believers to sacrificially give of themselves for others. But in Ephesians 5, we learn that husbands are called to a much higher accountability to that injunction, to that command, to sacrificially give of themselves, especially for their wives. And so, men, you need to look to Jesus for your model of leadership and for your model of love. What does it look like? Look to Christ. I think most men... They have that innate understanding that they're they're natural-born leaders, especially of their wives, their children. I think most men get that. It's just I think some look to the wrong model of leadership to follow. Some look to the business model of leadership. Husband plays the boss or the CEO, sits in his office all day, enjoys the privileges of being at the top of the food chain, while his employee or, or wife does all the grunt work. It's kind of funny. At my old engineering job, before I went to seminary to become a pastor, I worked at my engineering job, and we had this one manager-slash-boss guy, and literally, literally he did no work. He did nothing all day in his office. Like, we, we never saw him do any meaningful work. And you can imagine the result. Nobody respected him. And when he told people to do things, yeah, they might do it because they don't want to get fired, but there's no respect in that relationship. It became a running joke. Some husbands are the same way. They like to play boss while themselves never serving, never contributing, never sacrificing and and doing their part. And then they wonder why they don't receive any respect. Others look to the military model of leadership or maybe the sports model of leadership where the husband is the, the coach or the commander and he merely barks orders at his wife and children. Some, I think, even look to the dictator model of leadership. But a dictator doesn't make for a very good husband. Why? Well, because he's only concerned about himself, and he doesn't really care for his wife's needs or others' needs. Her cares and concerns are irrelevant, and he only seeks to please himself. Unfortunately, this is quite natural for man given our fallen and sinful, selfish hearts, and such is the nature of our flesh, even partly as a result of the curse after the fall. Jesus knew man had a proclivity to abuse leadership. It was going to to happen. So he gave some special instructions to his disciples about this. And I want you to see this. Turn to Luke chapter 22. A little aside here, but I really want you to see this leadership instruction from Christ. Turn to Luke 22. This is like leadership 101. If you're like thinking about becoming a leader or you, you're a husband, you already are a leader, here's leadership 101 straight from Christ himself. Luke chapter 22. He's teaching a critical lesson on leadership. It applies across the board, but husbands would do well to really pay attention to it. 
Luke 22, his disciples are coming up to him. You probably remember the deal. They're disputing about themselves as to which one is the greatest. Let's pick it up in verse 24. And there arose also a dispute among them, the disciples, as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. They wanted to be the best, the top. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest. And the leader like the what? The servant. Here, here we see it again, what Christ is teaching. He's pointing to the world's model of leadership. The kings of the Gentiles. The, the, war, the rulers of the world. How do they lead? They, they dominate. They just lord over their subjects. They dictate over them. They dominate them. They, they're the boss. And he's saying, if you want to lead in my kingdom, it's not how it's going to happen. That's not how you get to the top. Never does Christ tell them that they're wrong for wanting to be on the top, for wanting to be great, for wanting to be number one. That, that's not necessarily wrong if you want to be great in the kingdom. He's just telling them, if you want to be great, let me tell you how to get there. It's a 180 from the world. They dominate, but if you want to be leader, if you want to be great, then you need to be the, the slave, is really the word there, the servant of others. You serve. That's how God reckons greatness and leadership. The leader like the servant, or really the slave. So for husbands, rather than being the slave driver, you need to be the slave. You need to be the one who serves. And this is the model that Christ left behind. Isn't this what Christ did for us? Didn't he show us what this is to not domineer, but to serve, and even to the extent that he did? And remember, all this hangs off of that command in Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives. Everything else hangs off of that. You can turn back to Ephesians 5 now, by the way. Husbands, love your wives. It's the model of love that Christ left behind and the model of leadership as well. And when you look to Christ, what he did, it really transforms and informs that command. Husbands, love your wives. It's transformed and it's informed by what Christ did. And you'll quickly find it's, it's not easy. This is not an easy role to be the lover of your wife and children. But nonetheless, that's what it is. So, we've gone the command in Ephesians 5. Remember, I've given you three observations. The command, the model. Let me give you a third observation from this Ephesians 5 passage. The purpose. The purpose. Why is the husband to lead and really to love his wife like Christ did? That's a good question. Why? What's your goal? Well, let's keep reading. Look at verse 26. Right after the command, husbands love your wives, he says, so that. Whenever you see the word so that, it's telling you purpose or result. Purpose or result clause. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. It's talking about Christ in the church, but like we just said, he's the model. So this applies to husbands. Sanctify, cleanse, wash, present in glory, no spot or wrinkle, but holy and blameless. You get the picture? It's pretty clear. Christ's mission concerning the church 
was to present her before God as acceptable, holy, blameless. And the husband's mission is the same. Your mission as husbands is to see to it that your wives are sanctified, conformed into the image of Christ, and made holy. That's your goal. Now you need to think about this one. A lot of guys find themselves trying to lead their wives, their families, and wanting to do a better job. They really they want to do a better job, and that's wonderful. But at times they fail to stop and ask themselves, wait a second, where am I trying to lead my wife? That's an important question. And What's the goal of my leadership? Where am I trying to get those who follow me? And if you as a leader, if you don't know where you're going, one thing's certain. Those who are following you will never get there. So what is the goal or purpose of your leadership concerning your wives? It's not her financial stability. It's not her comfort. It's not her beauty or even her health. It's not that she has a nice house over her head or that she has a nice car in the garage. Those things are all nice, sure. That's not the ultimate goal. What is your ultimate goal as being the leader and lover of your wife? The goal is that your wives would be more like Christ. That's your goal. You're leading them to the cross so that they would be more like Christ. And in this, God is supremely glorified, and in this, your wife is supremely sanctified. And that's what God wants to see. That is a pleasing marriage to God. That's a pleasing husband who's doing what he needs to be doing as leader and lover. I know, this, not, this isn't what people usually think about today when they're asked, what should be the husband's primary concern for his wife? It's not what people think about, I know. Most would answer, you know, providing for her financially, putting a roof over her head, protecting her, meeting her emotional needs. Those things are important, but again... Don't over-prioritize them. Your chief aim for your wife as her leader is to see to it that she has a strong and growing relationship with Christ and is growing in holiness. That's what matters by far the most. There's a lot more we could say about the husband's role. We're just doing a brief preview this morning. Just know for now, the husband's role to lead and love his wife, not easy. Those are not easy tasks, easy functions, easy roles that come with headship and whatnot to lead, to love. It can be a challenge. You're called to a high task. And men today, if you can call them that, they're fleeing marriage or they're postponing marriage because they're not up to the task. They don't want that responsibility. Or if they do get married, they're giving up this responsibility to the wife. Hence, the Homer Simpson. As it is no longer the norm, more and more men are seeing God's role for the husband as being nearly impossible to fulfill. It's just, this isn't practical. This is not realistic. I can't do this. I can't really do this. How can you really be the husband that God calls you to be? Or, same thing applies to the wives. How can you really be the wife that God calls you to be? It seems, this is is not real, right? This is not how we're really supposed to do it, right? I want you to know that without Christ... These roles are impossible. 
You, you can't do it. You cannot fulfill the roles that God wants you to fulfill apart from Christ and the Spirit. You're going to get nowhere, and you're going to encounter serious difficulties in marriage if you're not depending and looking to Him. To have a redeemed relationship, you must first have a redeemed life. To find peace and harmony with your spouse, you must first find peace and harmony with God. This is why even in marriage, the gospel must be central. I've said over the weeks that these roles we're talking about, these marriage roles, are foundational to marriage. And they are. You need to have a strong foundation if if your house of marriage is to last. And these roles... They're part of that foundation. But do you, know, do you know what's even more foundational? The gospel. The gospel is even more foundational. The roles are important. That's why we spend a lot of time talking about them. But you and your spouse's relationship to Christ, it's more important. It's more fundamental. Salvation, it is the ultimate foundation to marriage. So you must keep Christ and the gospel central to your daily living and relationship. So consider Christ. All of you who are here, I imagine most, if not all of you, claim to be Christians, assume that you're Christians. Do you truly have that relationship with Christ? Do you have peace with God through the gospel and you know it? Jesus second member of the Trinity, came down to earth. God himself took on a human nature. Why? To die. To die on the cross. Why would he do that? Why would God give up his son for that? Like I said earlier, it was a life for a life. So that you could be redeemed. So that you could be purchased from the slave market of sin where you were held captive. And that's, that's how you are. You're, you're lost. You're condemned. You're enslaved to sin. But Christ in love, he came down and he died on the cross to free you from that, to redeem you from your own sin and the consequences of your sin. So you need to understand that. You need to understand what he did and then you need to repent of those sins and turn to him in faith. In faith, believe upon him as your savior and and trust in him for eternal life and, and he's going to transform you. He'll redeem your life and you'll start seeing him redeem your relationships on this level. Only then, only if you have that saving relationship with Christ can you have a marriage as God intends. That's why the gospel and salvation are primary. Don't get me wrong. Non-Christians, they can have good marriages in a sense, of course. They can be loving. They can get along with one another. But in a way that's meaningful to God, the Creator, they cannot. Only those who have peace vertically can hope to have a true, meaningful, God-glorifying peace horizontally with their spouse. (coughs) Only true believers can really flourish in marriage, spiritually speaking, and actually please God in their relationship, which is key. Well, that's going to do it. That's going to do it for our extended preview of the roles of the husband. Like always, there's more to say. We're going to stop there for that. And now we want to return to Titus 2. Like I said, it's all kind of an extended intro again. Two sermons in one, you could say. But 
want to switch gears now and return back to Titus to our actual starting point. Paul in Titus 2, he, he gives very special instructions to the younger generation. And we use these instructions to springboard off of them and talk about the roles in a bigger picture, but we don't really want to neglect Titus 2 itself. That's our primary text. So let's return now to our primary passage. Here's what's really interesting about Titus 2, though. In the weeks gone by, we've seen that Paul gives instructions, and he gives four marks for godly older men, if you remember, Four marks for godly older women. Seven marks for godly younger women. Now in verse 6, we get to the young men. What does he say for the young men? One thing. There's just one mark, one characteristic, just one thing he says to the younger men. It's kind of like, what, what's up with that? I mean, what, did he run out of space on the parchment or something? Or Why just one thing for the younger men? In all likelihood, Paul... Who knows? Probably knew that the men, the young men, they can only handle bite-sized instruction. You've got to make it short, sweet, to the point, to capture their short attention spans. Who knows? But if the young men do need to learn just one thing, this would be it for sure. So let's go ahead and cover the one and only mark of godly younger men from Titus 2.6. One mark of godly younger men. Namely, that they are to be sensible. That's it, that they are to be sensible. Look at verse 6. He says, Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. That's it. That's all he's got to say for the younger men. Whereas Titus was to speak these instructions to the older men, older women, and younger women, if you look back at verse 2. Here, he says, urge the younger men. See the difference in verb from speak to urge? This is a stronger term, and it aims at a stronger response. The point is that it's not enough to simply speak softly and suggest something to a younger man. He needs to be urged, exhorted, challenged. You have to plead with them. This verb also comes in the present tense, indicating this should be done over and over and over again. It's not just one and done. One sermon or one training seminar, usually not enough to really change a young man. Over and over again, you need to exhort, urge, encourage them on the right path. It's a long process. Who exactly are young men? I covered this many weeks ago, but just to bring it up again. Older men are those considered, at least back in this day, to be those pushing 60 and beyond. Younger men then would be those in their 20s, 30s, even 40s, with the 50s being, the, the, I guess, in the middle ground. This is not the first time those in Scripture or youths in Scripture are called out. Just turn back real quick to 1 Timothy 4.12. This is a, a key passage on youths that they should get to know. Those who are younger, which biblically speaking, if you're you know under 50, you're a younger man. Which for some of you I think is encouraging, maybe not for others, but 1 Timothy 4.12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, 
show yourself an example of those who believe. He's speaking to Titus, but we see an example for all younger men to, to be above reproach, to be an example through how you live. We'll turn the page to 2 Timothy 2.22, just one page over to the right. 2 Timothy 2.22, another key verse on youths. Again, talking to Timothy, he says, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. There's more. There's many passages in Scripture where the younger generation is called out, given specific instruction. So what we have going on in Titus, you can turn back there in Titus 2. The instruction here is for young men to focus all their energy on one thing, being sensible. Now we've got to talk about, of course, well, what, what exactly does it mean to be sensible? Five times Paul mentions this characteristic in the book of Titus, and he eventually applies it to every age group. So this really isn't just for the younger men. It's really for everybody. God wants everyone in the church to display this characteristic, to be sensible. This term has a range of meaning, sensible, prudent, moderate, displaying common sense or good judgment. I think these meanings converge on one term, though. If you had to pick one, I'd go with self-control. Two almost synonyms in the Greek between sensible and self-control. Now, here's a good verbal illustration if you really want to get what this means. Remember the story of the Gerasene demoniac? The crazy guy, he had, you know, he's demon-possessed. He called himself Legion because he had so many demons in him. Remember him? And this guy was crazy. He was out of control. He, no one could restrain him. They put chains on him. He just broke the chains off. Nobody could bind him. He was violent. He was uncontrolled. So he had no self-control, to be sure. So Christ comes in mercy. He casts the demons out into the herd of swine. Remember the story. Wait a second. What happened to the guy, though? What happened to this crazy guy? Well, Mark 5.15 says, They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion. That phrase there, in his right mind, is the exact same word we have for sensible. It's a good, it's a good verbal picture of, of what it means to be sensible. He was in his right mind. He was now in control of his thoughts and actions. No longer crazy. It's a self-controlled mind that leads to self-controlled actions. That's how I like to think of it, sensible. A self-controlled mind that leads to self-controlled actions. Here's the thing, though, about young men. They often act like the garrison demoniac, but they don't need to be demon-possessed to do it. It just comes with the territory of being a younger man. They tend to be impulsive, volatile, unrestrained in conduct. They often display a lack of common sense and good judgment. And they get themselves or others into a lot of trouble. In short, young guys often do dumb things, and they don't need to be demon-possessed to do them. Now, I could give you several examples from my own life, but I'll just save those for some future sermon. I'll keep those in reserve. But here are some others of what it does not look like for younger men to be sensible. Have you ever heard of the Darwin Awards? It's kind of funny in a, in a sad way, I guess. They're phony awards 
given to people who kill themselves in stupid ways, thereby removing themselves from the gene pool. For instance, a 19-year-old man sought to dodge the World War II draft in 1942. He wanted to dodge a draft. So he tried to get a horse to step on his foot and break his toes. Then you're out. You're out of the draft if you have a broken foot. So he pushed the horse. He shoved the horse. Horse wouldn't budge. Horse is not stepping on his toes. So he goes around behind the horse, and he kicks the horse in the tail. Horse kicked back. Got him in his throat, and he died. Not so, someone finds that funny. Not so sensible. Not so sensible. Or there's another young man who, he attempted what's called a polar bear swim on a freezing night in Canada. Doesn't sound good. This is where you, apparently, you cut two holes in the ice on a frozen lake. You jump in one hole, and your goal is to come out the other hole. So pretty simple, essentially. But little did this guy know that it's nearly impossible to find that second small hole in the ice once you're under the surface in night, or when it's pitch black and it's freezing cold. So he came in. He never came out. Sad, but these are some examples, some radical examples, of what it does not look like to be sensible. I'm sure you get the point. These are some of the not-so-sensible young men do. It's funny, when I was reading some of these examples online or illustrations, almost all of them, we're about young men. A few are women or the older man, older woman. They're mostly young men. And this is why guys need to focus their energy on being sensible and self-controlled. It really is a good thing. It will keep them out of a lot of trouble, and it will help them in really all these other categories in life. If they can just be sensible, self-controlled, they're on their way toward real maturity. It needs to become their new way of life. And in fact, if you look again at verse 6, The first phrase of verse 7 most likely belongs at the end of verse 6. You know, there's no punctuation in the Greek. And so, for reasons we're not going to get into, Paul is most likely saying young men need to be sensible in all things, verse 7. They need to be sensible in all things. Not just a few, but in all areas of life or aspects of life. They need to learn to be sensible. That's the instruction. That's the, the one bullet for the younger men. Be sensible. And really be sensible in all things, in all aspects of life. And that's it. That's their instruction. It's, it is simple. And so those of you who fall into that category of younger men, guess what? At the very least, you can't use the excuse that this is too complicated. It's not. God wants you to focus on being sensible, displaying common sense, displaying good judgment, and exercising self-control. Now, the instruction here in verse 6 is for is to urge younger men to be sensible. So I figured I'd end with that. I'd end with some practical tips, some practical application for, for all of you, but especially for the younger men on, well, how, how, what does it look like? How do you be or become more sensible? If you find yourself to be one of those who notoriously lacks good judgment, self-control, common sense, then these practical applications will be for you, and you probably know who you are. So consider a few things. Number one, think first. Not rocket science, but think first. Before you act, before you speak, stop, think. And you'll you'll be doing all right. 
run it through the filter, so to speak. Some guys, it's like they don't have a filter on their words or on their actions. They just do things. So stop and ask yourself, should I really do this? Should I really say this? What might happen if I do this? Could this end poorly for me, for others? Stop, think, ask yourself those questions. The most important question you want to ask is, would God truly be honored by this? Today, people ridicule those old, what would Jesus do bracelets, remember? WWJD bracelets. But they had a good intention to help you stop, think, remember, you know, what would Jesus do in this situation? Stop, think. It's really the first step in being sensible to get you there. So first, think first. Second, ask second. Second tip, ask second. When in doubt about something to say or something to do, before you do it, ask someone. Get some counsel. Proverbs says that fools perish for a lack of counsel, and it's true. They get themselves into trouble because they don't ask around. If your filter is broken or not really working, use someone else's. Ask someone else, do you think this is a good idea? I think we've all been at that wedding where we've, we've seen that best man speech just go way south because that guy did not ask his wife to proofread his speech. You know what I'm talking about. So when in doubt, secondly, ask. Third, stick to the right crowd. Stick to the right crowd. Actually, it's a good advice. It's scriptural. 1 Corinthians 15 mentions the same thing. The fool surrounds himself with fools. If you've got a problem making poor decisions, probably not the best idea to have lots of friends or people around you who also make poor decisions. If your friends are not sensible, guess what? You're not going to be sensible. To the contrary, if you surround yourselves with mature and self-controlled people, they're going to raise your level. And you're going to start to become more like that. So prioritize friends or just people around you who make you a better person and not the opposite. And then lastly, number four, impress God, not others. Impress God, not others. Most of the stupid things guys do usually involve trying to impress someone else. And if they're real young, usually it's a girl. But for believers, you really need to concern yourself with just this. Impress God. If your goal and what you say and what you do is to try and impress God, so to speak, I think you know what I mean, then you'll be all right. God wants you to live for him. He wants you to please him. So don't worry about impressing other people, trying to live for someone else. You need to live for the Lord. And if you continually set God before you, he's going to guide you in the right action, and you'll find yourself being sensible self-controlled and mature. So that's it. That's a little application for you. That's our one mark for godly younger men, simply to be sensible. It's instruction that applies to all of us, as we'll see later in Titus. God wants all of his people displaying sensibility, self-control. And surely you've noticed, we've really slowed down for these verses in Titus chapter 2, namely for the portrait of the older and younger generations now, it was on purpose because God's words for the church here in Titus 2, they're, they're so relevant and practical and, and full. And you really need to be devoting yourselves to these descriptions in Titus chapter 2. So consider where you're at. Consider where you need to be. Whether you're older or younger, male or female, God has word for you here in Titus 2, which is why we've spent so much time on it. So consider where you need to grow in. 
God has specific instructions for you, so take them to heart. Grow in Christ-likeness and offer up your life as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Be pleasing to him through Titus 2. Let's pray. Father, we we come, we praise you, and thank you for your word. Your word is truth, is a light unto our feet, is a lamp unto our path. And we thank you for these instructions here in Titus chapter 2, Lord. They are good. We need them. We need them often. We need these reminders. I pray that through your spirit you would work in myself and the people here at Berean Bible Church to conform us into the image of Christ, which is reflected on the pages of scripture, even here in Titus 2. And Help us to be like this. Help us to grow in these areas. I pray in particular for the younger men here that they would grow in sensibility. Give them a maturity that Christ himself exampled for us. I pray also for the husbands, the fathers in the room. Lord, may they step up. Our society is literally decaying and falling down because of poor husbands and poor fathers. There's no debating that. May we buck the trend. May we counter the tide and may these men really rise up. Maybe they've made mistakes. Maybe they've done poorly. But even today, may today be the day where they change, where they resolve to follow you more, to be the better man, to grow in loving and leading their wives as you call them to. Everyone has to start somewhere. So I pray everyone here would would find that starting point and would really grow toward being like Christ. Christ, we love you. We thank you for loving the church. We thank you for giving yourself up for her, for dying for her, for going for the cro- to the cross for her, for sacrificially giving yourself for her. May all of us do that. May we all be characterized by this sacrificial service, the sacrificial love for others. Bless us, Lord, as we seek to do that. In your name we pray. Amen.